millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox, the podcast that's curious about curiously good books. And as it's curious about the books, it's also curious about the people who commission, edit, market and sell those books. This week, we have an interview with Amy Brand, who for the past four years has been director of the MIT Press. In a recent Q&A that appeared on The Scholarly Kitchen, Amy said of her role at the MIT Press, the job is a perfect fit for me because it builds on my experiences beyond publishing in academic science, university administration, and research startups. In our conversation, we talk about the changes Amy has made at the press, and how she sees them against the wider context of the publishing and scholarly landscape. Amy's appointment in 2015, in fact, marked her return to the MIT Press, as she'd been their executive editor in cognitive science and linguistics from 1994 to 2000. Between those appointments, Amy's career included a number of years at Harvard University, first as Programme Manager of the Office for Scholarly Communication, and then as Assistant Provost for Faculty Appointments and Information. When I spoke to Amy on the phone, I began by remarking that I'd noticed she was producing a documentary, so she was clearly interested in a wide range of ways of presenting knowledge beyond the traditional university press categories. Um, very, very much so. You know, that dates back to the experience I had as an editor at the MIT Press in the 90s. The director of the press at the time, Frank Urbanowski, was kind of, I would say, ahead of his time in terms of thinking about the potential for digital media in relation to scholarship. And so we were one of the first presses. It was MIT Press and and also Columbia University Press were the first presses to begin to really invest in online communities in specific subject areas. And so for for us, it was cognitive science, which was my area as a PhD and also as an editor. For Columbia, it was uh, political science. And, you know, and, and I became fascinated with how we could, you know, translate the work that was going on at the academy for a broad audience and build in opportunities for immersion beyond, you know, your typical journal article or or monograph in terms of the genre of the information. So that sort of set me down that path. And, and interestingly, it was one of the reasons that, so I had been an acquisitions editor here for about seven years before I left in 99, 2000. And, um, you know, that experience is sort of what led me away from MIT initially because I became so interested in digital publishing. 
going all the way back to your undergraduate work, I, you studied linguistics. I and did. again, is, am, am I reading too much into it to see that sort of interest in, in sort of deep structures and connections that, that linguists are involved in? As, as, again, some, something that's a bit of a, a thread running through your, your interests subsequently. Not at all. I mean, I, I think that I've very much stayed, you know, stayed true to this interest in, in how language conveys information, how the mind structures language. And I, and I see what university presses do and what publishers do is, is about that very path from, from text to knowledge. And so I, I see a great deal of continuity between my earlier interests and, and what I do now. But unlike some directors of university presses, you stepped outside the university press world. You were, you were for a number of years uh, a vice and assistant provost at, at Harvard University. So I guess there must have come a point where you had to decide, do I want to step back into the university press world? Or given that there are lots of questions about what its future holds, you might have decided, well, no, there are other areas that will absorb and retain my interest outside that world. But you made the conscious, but very specific decision to come back. Yeah, you know, I, I again, I see a lot of continuity in that. The, the Harvard story is, it's a little bit different. What happened was, I so I left the MIT Press, where I've been an editor. I went to work at Crossref, which I am, is an organization I'm still very involved in, you know, as, as a board member. And I feel very strongly about how it's transformed scholarly information. But when I was working at, at Crossref, that was sort of the start of the open access fervor. And a friend of mine, someone that I had known for, known for my academic Days, who was a professor at at Harvard, reached out and said, "You know, I'm starting this office for scholarly communication." That's when I left Crossref to go help start up the office for scholarly communication at Harvard. And it was when I was in that particular role that I began to see that there's really this fascinating connection between publishing and academic careers and access to information. And in some respects, the Harvard job was kind of shaped around my interest because it, it wasn't just sort of straightforward academic administration. It was how do people kind of present or narrate their contribution to scholarship, to new knowledge, and how does that impact their careers? And so it was very relevant to my whole kind of set of interests in that space. It, it wasn't as much of a departure as people think. Now, it was right. a very different you know, work environment from working in a university press. So what was it like, Amy, coming back to MIT after having been away for a, for a number of years? Did it feel familiar or had, it, had, had everything oh, yeah. changed? So I, I'll never forget when I first came in to meet with staff before I started here. Now, the position I left to come back to the MIT press was literally a block away. It was down the street on First Street in Cambridge. This was the U.S. offices of digital science, which is part of Nature Macmillan. And I, I was helping, I was actually running the U.S. offices for digital science. So I walked down the street because I'd just been hired and the outgoing director said, I really want you to meet with all the staff. And, and I come back into the large conference room here. And the majority of the people were the same people that I had worked with, you know, in the 90s. And so, mm. yes, there were some new faces, but um, it really was like coming home to my second family, and, and I've certainly felt that way since I've been here, I guess it's almost four, no, actually just over four years uh, as director. So it's 
it's a homecoming in many respects. It's it's not just the press. It's MIT and MIT's culture, which is very different from Harvard's culture. And it's a focus around the press that I think, you know, was there when I was here as an editor, too, which is this isn't, you know, just about, you know, complacently doing what we've always done. It's about constantly rethinking what kind of publishing is, is best for universities and for MIT in particular, in our case. And you, you very consciously, when you, when you became director in 2015, you consciously gave yourself six months, I think, in order to produce a, a five-year plan for the press's future. Can you, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure there are many, many aspects to it, but can you maybe summarize how you set about that, um, that, that sure. task that you set? Well, yeah, um, it was very conscious. It was not, I think, imposed on me. It maybe came a little bit from the mindset that I had had managing at Harvard a lot of complex projects where I had learned about agile project management and, and things like yes. that. But it meant that in order to be able to to produce this thing that I wanted to produce, that I had to spend a lot of time meeting with and listening to people at the press and also on campus. And so that was extremely valuable. And, and it also was an you know incredibly valuable team-building exercise for my senior staff, the folks that report to me directly, because it was very much a joint effort. Every member you know of the senior team had a part in producing that report and those recommendations. And then we brought them up to the provost. It kind of gave us a, a roadmap for the way forward. I mean, when we're when we're sort of sitting there thinking, is this consistent with what we said we wanted to do? It's very valuable to be able to check back. We we had emerged with kind of a list of eight, I think it was, strategic priorities at the time, and it's been very helpful. Now, I would say four years in, so it was a five-year plan, four years in, it's kind of outlived its its usefulness, in part because we surpassed our financial um, objectives, and so we've already kind of reached where we wanted to be, but, but also Congratulations because... Congratulations on that. Thank you. But also because I learned in the process that the way we had done that was not actually maximally engaging to the staff here. So they had a voice, and then this thing was delivered to them, but they weren't given the information about how does what I do in my unit support those higher-level priorities. And so now we're taking a different approach to strategic planning called um, OKRs, Objectives and Key Results, which of course, like everything else, emerged out of Silicon Valley, but um, it's been a really good, uh, you know, process for engaging staff so that there's much more kind of local ownership over, you know, what, what those priorities are and what needs to be, be done to, to realize them. And I, again, this, I know this is a, a big question, so just tell me if it's impossible to, to answer succinctly, but I was, about, I was sort of thinking about that process you undertook of going out and having conversations. And I was thinking about all the constituencies that, that you would inevitably have been thinking about, you know, talking about staff, talking about your authors, talking about readers, students, faculty, your parent institution, and then yeah. the sort of wider, the wider culture, you know, the, the whole sort of economy of knowledge. So it must have been, you know, you must have had to, to navigate quite a, a sensitive course in order to boil that down into eight strategic priorities. Yeah, you know, it's it wasn't, I would, I would say it probably wasn't a, a perfect mapping between like the evidence base of what I heard from all those constituents and what we ended up yes. with. I mean, none yes. of these things ever, ever is, right? But no, um, no but I, I think that 
it was quite a process and and it in addition to helping us get to those priorities it was also an exercise in bridge building that's been extremely uh, important in how the press you know works with the rest of the university so i often talk about part of what i tried to do in my leadership since since coming in is really take the university press and kind of pivot it back towards the institute rather than away. It's always a difficult thing to navigate because, of course, you want to have complete editorial independence. Yes. And, of course, university presses, you know, the most most of us don't, most of our authors, like at least 90% of our authors have nothing to do with MIT and shouldn't. So it's, it's mm. not about that. It's, you know, it, it's about how, you know, we best serve to amplify what MIT is trying to do and its faculty are trying to do and how we bring other voices into the mix. But yes. we have, you know, as a result of that strategic planning process, many new partnerships with different units, you know, with the open learning folks, uh, certainly with the media lab, with the libraries. You know, we never had, for example, a partnership with the phone school of management, you know, who mm. publishes a lot. Their faculty publish quite a bit, you know, wonderful business and finance books. And now we have two series MIT's magazine that's quite well known as Technology Review. They had started publishing some great books in science fiction and were looking for a partner to help distribute them. And that was a, you know, if I if I wasn't doing that listening tour, I wouldn't have known that. And is, is that part of one of your strategic priorities that you've described as opening up the black box of publishing, unbundling what publishers do in order to create new strategic partnerships rather than a manuscript is delivered at one end and out pops a, yeah. a book at the other. Yeah, it, it, it definitely is. It's it's forming those partnerships because faculty, and in, in many cases, they are their own kind of publishing entity. If you look around any university, I remember actually when I came into... I came into, you know, the Office for Scholarly Communication at Harvard and we were starting it up and I thought, okay, the first thing I'm going to do, since this is all about helping Harvard do more open access publishing, the faculty, it had nothing to do with the press at Harvard, I was going to do an audit of how many journals are being published at Harvard. And it turned out to be something like 60. You know, most of them were within departments and they were handling it themselves. And so... To me, it just seems that if, if you are, as we are in our case, which isn't sort of, say, true of, of Princeton, uh, uh, we're, we're, we are part and parcel of MIT. We're not even a separate fiscal entity, no separate tax ID. We're just part of the institute. That, that part of our you know, role should be to be serving you know, those faculty who are, who are doing that. The other thing that I should really point out is that most university presses don't, don't publish journals. And so, of course, how how we're going to look at the space is going to be colored by the fact that we are doing both books and journals. Yes, so you have that expertise in how yeah. to draw. Now, one of the things, it was, I don't know if it was the top priority only in, in the terms of, you know, numerical order, but enhancing the trade list yeah. was something you set down as a priority. And suddenly I was looking through the catalogue this morning and I think that the, the trade titles come at the front and they run to about 85 pages. So it's a very rich and varied trade list that you've that you've developed there. I mean, in those four years, has that has that come on uh, greatly? If I'd looked at the catalogue from from 2014, would the trade list have been significantly smaller? It would have been significantly smaller, and it would have been largely focused around art and architecture. Yeah. So part of the 
the history here is that the press had developed very, very strong expertise around trade publishing, you know, in, in design and publicity and marketing and all of that, but was only applying it or largely applying it to one part of the list. And so it, it wasn't so much kind of coming in and saying, okay, I just have to reinvent the MIT press. It was coming in and saying, we should be applying our ability to do trade books more broadly. And, and in particular, because of my background through more on the science side and my interest and the fact that part of what I was seeing out there in the world is a much larger appetite among reading audiences for accessible science and technology information, it seemed like a good opportunity. And it also was a way in which we were serving the objectives of the Institute around being a, a, a science and technology, for the most part, not exclusively university, that believes in using that research and scholarship to solve problems in the world. I mean, that was yes. a way for us to align with that. Well, I noted, Dan, one of the one of the titles in your current catalogue has the subtitle Roadmaps for the Present. And it seemed to me that that actually was something that you were delivering on across the catalogue. You were you were looking at a, you know, it might be a, t- a technological scientific issue, problem or development, but you were actually thinking or presenting books, which were up to date in thinking mm-hmm. about its real world applicability. You know, how does this, how will this actually have an impact on people's lives? What What are the things we should know about this? And how should we be, um, you know, handling developments? Right. And it is, it's often a tough call. I don't know if you've heard this from other directors that you've spoken with. The line between what is a professional book and what is a, a trade book is is sometimes quite blurry. And it's something that we wrestle with constantly. We're not like a a trade publishing house that puts out truly popular treatments of, of this kind of topic matter. We are much more about books that, that honor the complexity of their subject matter, even when they are trade books. Well, I, I wonder, because sometimes you buy in rights, I think, from UK trade houses, don't you? So I guess you're, you're always sort of asking yourself that question, is that, you know, does this meet the criteria of a, an MIT Press trade book? Yes, everything that we do, you know, 99.9% of what we publish is going to undergo, you know, a fairly rigorous peer review process. Sometimes the imports will not in the same way because, say, if we're translating a book from French or Italian, we're not going to do big revisions in the English edition of that book. And there are reviews published and we can already get a sense of of the quality of the work. Sometimes when I do a translation, I'll reach out to the press director of the you know original language publication to get their view. But yes, everything that we publish does go through peer review and that's an extremely important and interesting part of what university presses do. And I've heard it said by some of your peers that it's, it's something that, that should be made more of, made more of in the, in the, in the wider sort of public forum because it's, it's, it's something that, you know, it's not, it's not an impediment to publishing, it's something that sort of gives university press publishing part of their character and their calibre. Absolutely. More of, but probably better than we do it. You know, I I think among university presses, we're probably more rigorous than most in terms of the number of reviews we do at different stages. But I think the whole system is flawed. I mean, I think it served us very well and continues to serve us well. But I tend to think about peer review in the context not only of publishing, but also in terms of, again, academic careers, tenure and promotion, grant making, you know, review panels around that. When you 
have a process that's highly anonymized, yes, it can be more trustworthy, but it can also be a vehicle for amplifying bias. And I think that yes. that's kind of some, some of what we've seen around peer review. And then, of course, the other thing is it's just hard to get peer reviewers if you rely on the sort of typical way that most of us think about getting experts to comment on on research is, is a bit cronyistic, right? You sort of go back to the yes. same network and people get exhausted. They're also managing a whole set of incentives around, you know, conflict of interest and things like that. So yes. I, I tend to do a lot of, well, some on the side of my own work on scholarly communications itself. And I'm currently working on peer review as, as a as a research project because I really think right. it's an opportunity to to improve how we do it. Yeah. Right. Well, we we, should, we must definitely speak about that again when you when you publish on that. I'd be fascinated <laughs> okay. to to talk in more detail about yeah. that. Um, do I mean, do you have time, Amy, to acquire books, or are you really operating at the strategic level and unable yeah. to to get no, the attention I, to books? You know, that has been one of the hardest things for me here because I always want to acquire books. I'm constantly meeting people and hearing about great projects and I'd love to do it, but I don't have time. And so what I, what I do do is, um, you know, go so far in a conversation and then hand off the connection or the relationship to one of my editorial colleagues. Um, And I think, I think it's worked out well. I don't ever want them to feel that because I think so-and-so is interesting or the project is interesting that therefore, you know, the director said this, so we have to publish it. It's not how it works. It's just sort of, you should look at this, and then it then it's completely in your hands. So you get a little bit of vicarious satisfaction, but it's not quite the same as as perhaps seeing it all the way through yourself. Yes, no, exactly. And and you know sometimes I'll I'll stay a little bit more involved, especially you know all of us university presses tend to do you know regional interest books or books that touch on our home institutions, and I tend to stay a little bit more involved in those those projects. And if I said, let's take quality of content as a given, but if I said, what would you like the MIT Press colophon on the spine of a book to say to a to a, a fairly sort of sophisticated reader, a reader who's aware of, of colophons and what they might mean, what, would, what, what sort of values would you like them to sort of, you know, associate, albeit subconsciously with that on the spine? Yeah, um, that's that's a really good question. I think that there's a word I'm searching for. I'm having a hard time finding. That that means something like a little. That means a little bit edgy and challenging, uh, yes. whatever the subject matter is. You know, I'd I'd like to think that, you know, we're we're very um, independent. We like to foster, uh, you know, cross-disciplinary, transdisciplinary, anti-disciplinary work, which also raises questions for peer review because it's sometimes harder, and we want to be sort of the, the the best publisher in the areas in which we publish when it comes to bringing uh, fresh new voices. Now, that's, an, that's an, you know, as you can t- tell with all of these issues, I can go off in, in a different direction. <laughs> but what's fascinating about about that is we are a prestigious press, I, I and I, I want to protect that prestige, but never to the point of, I'm going to make a decision about publishing a book based on the pedigree of the academic who's writing it. So you'll see in our list a lot of younger voices, you know, a lot of assistant professors, even postdocs, who, you know, are writing their first 
book because they have a fresh perspective on what might be an entirely new field or subject matter yeah. or they bring that kind of passion to it. I, I think there are some more established presses that don't tend to do that as much. We take more risks that way. If I were to ask you, Amy, what are the known unknowns that keep you awake at night or that you wake up thinking about in the morning? What would you what was on your list? Huh, that's that's a really good question as well. You know, I'm constantly asking myself uh, in the bigger decisions that I make every day, am I consistently putting the press's interests and reputation above my personal interests and my personal reputation because I hope mm-hmm. that I am? I mean, that to me is extremely important. I don't know if you thought I, I wrote a piece recently about leadership. It was It was on my I posted it to LinkedIn, um, you know, after years of reflecting about leadership, sort of realizing that there's so much humility and being given the opportunity to, to use a sort of denigrated George Bush phrase, like be the decider. And you can, you can never do that from, you know, from the position of sort of hubris. It has to be from really from, you know, I don't think that I, necessarily know more than you do, or I'm better, or I'm smarter, but I take this responsibility and I put it above myself. So I, I do, you know, it's when you have a, compl- a complicated kind of web of relationships with senior administrators at the at the university where you work and, and with authors who feel like they've known you for 30 years, as many of mine have, and they want to call in yeah. a favor, you know, that kind of yeah. thing. Yes, but, yes. So I, I, would, I, I do think about that a lot. And what about, I mean, again, it's, it's, an, it's a big question, but the sort of wider question about the, the way the evolution or the revolutions taking place in the in the knowledge economy and how that's, you know, whether there's going to be a squeezed place for the university press. Is that something that keeps you awake? Um, it's something that's top of mind for sure. I feel pretty confident in our strategy, which I think is also quite unique, which is, again, this sort of pushing more towards towards trade and being successful in that space while not sacrificing on quality and peer review and serving our authors. And at the same time, you know, going all out into the, the innovation, publishing innovation space at the same time where one can support the other. I think it goes in, in, both, in both directions. So I don't think the need for the press is going to be obviated by library-based publishing, for example. I see a, a renaissance and in interest in the types of books that we publish, certainly you know, among bookstores and booksellers and through the, the, the sales that we're seeing. I've never really believed... And then sort of the dichotomies that people talk about, well, it's going to be all digital. Well, no, you can, you know, you can have books and print continue at the same time that people are listening to audiobooks and, and reading on their Kindle. And similarly, I've never seen the dichotomy between all open or all paid. I think they can coexist very productively. And we're doing a lot of work around that now with our, our professional, truly scholarly monographs around what would it mean to get to the point where Actually, all of those books are subvented and published open access, even as we continue to produce print and sell print. Right. Um, this is always a tough question for people, but if I were to ask you to choose an MIT Press title that you think sort of embodies the spirit of what we've been talking about 
this morning. You know, it, need, it needn't be, you know, bestseller, but it's just a title that, that you sort of cherish for whatever reason, either because you published it or because, because it's, you know. What, what, does anything come to, to your mind? Oh, no, there's so many. It's like so many children. <laughs> yes. um, yeah, I'm trying to think. You know, I'm running through these books in my mind and I can think of our, you know, our best-selling book that sold 350,000 copies and it wouldn't be Mm -hmm. that. So I'm not going to mention that. And I I can think of my personal favorites that wouldn't necessarily be representative of the whole press. So it's, let me just say that I can, rather than saying the title, I can tell you about the process, right? So I think that my favorite books are often you know, uh, in more recent times, because there's so many fabulous MIT Press classics and backless titles, but, you know, are the ones where the process reflects intellectual engagement on the part of the editor in identifying the subject matter and matching it up with the right author. You know, you might yes. be, sometimes it's, we have books where, you know, the, the editor has read, or I have read, you know, an article in the New Yorker, and I think, oh my God, this has to be a book. And then when that happens, extremely satisfying. Well, actually, now I think I can actually mention one book, a, a recent book, which I think speaks to a lot of what the press is trying to do. So, so with the hedge that this isn't the best or most you know, important book that the MIT press ever published, yes, there's a book called The um, Dialogues by a physicist at, at University of Southern California named Clifford Johnson, which is a graphic novel treatment about the origins of the universe using basically you know, African-American drawn figures having conversations. And this book has been extremely successful. And I love it because I love the author. I love Clifford. And I love the fact, and it's been an, you know, a, a top seller for us. He tried to have the project agented and failed and ultimately came to the press. And he also you know, was very um, insistent on doing the drawings himself and designing it exactly the way he wanted it designed. It's brought us into a whole new market, you know, the whole kind of Comic-Con world, and we have many more graphic novel treatments in the work. But that, to me, represents, you know, we're moving into a bit more kind of the popularization of science, capturing new voices, capturing new genres and formats. So I think, I think the dialogues is, is a really good example of what we're trying to do now. Mm, that sounds like a very good choice. I, I should definitely check that out. Yeah. And which other presses do you look to with particular admiration? Oh, there. I mean, there's so many. Um, you know, I I had the privilege recently of being on a review committee for Duke University Press and and digging into what they're doing, and I have so much admiration for for their approach to publishing in the humanities which is quite different from, you know, from what we do. We have had a very close relationship, you know, over the years with with Princeton and Harvard and Yale because of our various sales consortia here and in, in and also Columbia and California. Um, so I get kind of more of a, a front view look into um, what, you know, what the other presses are doing. And I, I see, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm a little jealous that we don't do more in history because... Mm-hmm. Those are books that I love to read, and, and all of those presses do a fabulous job. I don't see us going in that direction. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I I think there are so many just 
wonderful university presses and and they each do things slightly differently. I will say, you know, in, in a more kind of competitive spirit that I don't think anybody's as distinctive as we are. Here's here's the very last question, Amy. When you want to switch off from all these big questions we've been discussing today, you know, at the end of the day or when you're on holiday, how do you how do you switch off? Yeah, and I, that has a very easy answer for me. Um, certainly, time with family is 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 top. I have I have three kids. I mean, two of them are out of the house now because they're older. But but time with family, and then and then the other thing is I have a very serious yoga practice. Um, it's a part of my life, and I find that that's probably the quickest way for me to switch off um, to to be able to sort of go to that space that's kind of quiet and where I can reset. I was talking to Amy Brand, director of the MIT Press. Do check out the latest MIT Press catalogue on their website. It's full of very enticing titles. If you've enjoyed this interview, you'll find more than 50 others in the series at thehedgehogandthefox.com. You can subscribe to the programme wherever you get your podcasts catch up on any interviews you've missed, and even leave a review. I'll be back again soon with another programme. So until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.